Action! So this evening we're going to be in John chapter 9 and we're going to not only be in it, we're going to get all the way through it. Um, if you have one of those passages, there's a like long chunks that we're not just going to go into. However, I must say that this passage contrasts like the one with Nicodemus in a different way than with the woman at the well. Um, the one, the contrast between Nicodemus and the woman at the well was socioeconomic status in large part. Um, you saw a lot of you know prestige and power with uh, Nicodemus, but on the other hand, the woman at the well had none. This one contrasts in a different way. Nicodemus, it was a very theologically rich conversation. The, the blind guy, or ex-blind guy, he was literally no theologian. And he literally like, called out the Pharisees, like, aren't you guys supposed to know? This is literally your job. I don't know. I'm just saying he healed me. <laughs> so this, this is a very different interaction. And so there's not as much theology to hash out here. We're going to be a little topical, so we'll find some more theology. Don't worry. But, um, but right in the text, it's very straightforward. Um, and I think you'll see that clarity um, borne out throughout the text. So um, the way I want to do this tonight is I'm going to lay out three truths that I think summarize the passage in a broad sense. Um, just give a nice summary of the different points that I think are both applicable and, um, and just really provide a good understanding of what is being said in the passage. We're going to say those off the top. I'm going to say them on the back. And then, as you can tell, I have a question. Uh, for those of you who have a lesson, it just says, so what? So what? The reason I included that, and the lesson being shorter, is I, I, I like these lessons in theology. I think they're helpful. I think it's helpful to study Jesus' interaction with people. But so what? What does, that, what does that mean? What does that do for us? Is it just good to know that Jesus did a bunch of things with a bunch of people and he taught a bunch of stuff? Or is there some point to it? And so as we go through this, I'm literally at the end, I'm just going to ask, so what? And I want to hear what you guys think we can take from this passage and apply to our lives. Is this passage directly applicable teaching us something as believers, some moral instruction? No, but there are definitely good lessons to be applied from it. And so I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on it. So be prepared for that question at the end. Um, last week I got on a little soapbox about being tired and not dealing with tired stuff very well. This week is a little bit different, and I gave you a little preview in the message out in band last night. Truth number one, the attitude you come to the table with determines the taste of the food. The attitude you come to the table with determines the taste of the food. If there is one thing that I have probably learned in college, the attitude people roll up every day with determines how their day is going to go. If they roll up with a bad attitude to class, they're going to hate the professor. If they roll up to food with a bad attitude, already predisposed on that food, they're going to hate the food in a literal sense. In a spiritual sense, if you come to some truth with a bias against it, you're going to hate that thing. And so I find that to be one of the most toxic things that I see um, in our generation, just to kind of give a nice stereotype there. 
we often have predispositions, uh, predilections, biases, etc. Whatever word you want to use, we have our mind made up before we ever get there, and so it really um, makes uh, makes it so that we project our feelings onto other people. For instance, going back to the classroom scenario, it's not often that the professor was really all that bad. It's just that we had a bad attitude, and so we often project our bad feelings, our our negativity onto people around us. And you're going to see the Pharisees do that in this passage. That's how I understand what they're doing. They don't come at it with a truthful angle because they've already made up their mind. Secondly, from a uh, more apologetic standpoint, unbelief produces ignorance or blindness even when there is evidence for it. And this is a great passage for those of you who are super evidence-based and kind of the hard science look at things. The Pharisees kept getting evidence. They kept asking the same question again and again. How did you get healed? How did you get healed? You're going to hear those things throughout the passage. And they kept having more and more people be like, he literally healed me. He literally did a miracle. And they're like, but how did he heal you? He put spit in clay and healed me. So they, they just kept hashing it over and over again. For those of you who are interested in science and um, you know, Richard Dawkins does glossing through this book in preparation for a famous atheist who wrote The God Delusion. When presented with evidence for Christianity, um, for the existence of God, for the Christian worldview, you should not be surprised that they do not believe it. As we're going to touch on tonight, spiritual sight requires that one, um, one has been able to see. And so Jesus draws a parallel between physical blindness to spiritual blindness. So in an apologetic standpoint, scientific standpoint, philosophical standpoint even, be prepared for people, even when you provide the best logic, the best explanation, you're like, that literally is perfect, that they would just be like, mm, no, I don't agree with that. Third, you don't need a theological background to worship God. The Spirit opens one's eyes to produce worship. Now, our worship should be grounded in theology. We touched on that last week. We talked about spirit and in truth. But this person, not theologically trained at all, and that's one of the most notable characteristics about him, the spirit naturally produced fruit in his life. We've been talking a lot about um, lordship and needing you know, that um, understanding that we are in service to Christ as a, as a cornerstone to being a Christian. However, I believe that this passage shows that you don't have to sit through teaching and be in a class or be educated to understand that genuine faith produces worship. The Spirit naturally does it. Those are the three things that I think you will see throughout this passage. The attitude you come to the table with determines the taste of the food. Unbelief produces blindness. You don't need theolog like a theological background to be inspired to worship once you become a Christian. Do those three premises make sense? Okay, is there any, any confusion on those? Because I, I, I think that'll actually our conversation to have that off the top. Okay, this one I, I did not have highlighted, so nobody has this verse. We're not going to read it. Um, if you guys would open to John 8, 31 through 55. Um, just glance through the passage. Don't take too much time to read it. But I just want... Um, I just want to ask, how would you describe Jesus' position with the Pharisees after John 8, 31 through 59? Like, we're going to start in John 9. That's where this passage picks up about the blind man, etc. 
where do you think where do you think Jesus' relationship is with the Pharisees at this point? How would you describe it? Fifty nine is kind of the climax. <laughs> Spoilers. <laughs> Not great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, other thoughts? <laughs> Completely disagree with each other. Pharisees are trying to prove Jesus wrong and everything, and then Jesus is just coming back with, you know, a Jesus answer. So, say the truth. Jesus does have a very interesting way in answering questions. It's like, would you just say it? And then. The disciples like I have to ask him later what he just said. It's very interesting. I'll, I'll There's a distinct Jesus answer, even though it's true. It's just occluded to non-spiritual eyes. Emily has a answer. I said I was going to say that the relationship's rocky. <laughs> <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Josh. That's my sister, everyone. <laughs> yes, it is rocky. <laughs> <laughs> no, we do it at school. Anyways, I would the way I just if you have the lesson I, I handed it out to some of you, I, I described it as Jesus in hot water because he is he is in a sticky situation here, and there is sort of an implication in verse fifty nine that Jesus miraculously got out of the situation when it just says he uh, he passed through the midst of them. It's kind of like really you just passed through the midst of them. Anyways, so he's around the temple, kind of running away. He not did his best Barry Sanders impression. Do you not know who Barry Sanders oh, is? Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, okay, I'm there. Sorry. Too sad. Was, yeah, it was a good joke move. Right. Sorry. Yes, I do. I made uh, that joke specifically for you. Thank you. <laughs> and then you let me know. So. I, I did. I really did initially. I'm sorry. <laughs> So Jesus is in hot water. It's a sticky situation. And this is where he's going to run across this blind man. He's running away from the Pharisees, but he's still in the temple area. So it's a very tenuous situation, very rocky situation. Verses 1 and 2 in chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a, blind, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So... We're going to see, this is kind of the, the problem that Jesus is faced with. There's a blind man, and he's run away from people. And now he's, he stumbles across this man by divine appointment, as we're going to see. But the disciples are rather confused about the purpose of his visit, verses 3 through 5. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it was, it was interesting. In Hellenistic Judaism, um, Greek infiltrated Judaism, there was um, a lot of different weird teachings, first off. They, some of them sort of had this Greek-infused idea of the pre-existence of the soul. So your soul in the past life may have done something evil, therefore bad stuff comes on you. Or there may be a... Um, they, they all, this is a really weird teaching. They believe that you could sin in the womb. So before you were born, you could commit some sort of sin. That was one of the teachings that floated around at the time. And so perhaps, perhaps this is what's going through the disciples' mind. They have the idea that you know, in a different life, in this life, just pre-born, 
Um, or, as you see, what about his parents? And that was another teaching that went through, um, that went around in that time, is that the sin of the parents could cause some sort of uh, issues for further generations, um, which is not a biblical teaching. I wanted to include Deuteronomy 24, 16, and Ezekiel, um, uh, what's that book? Exodus um, 18, 20. Or did I, did you, did I put down? That Ezekiel 18.20. Is it correct? Well, easy is no, Exodus. No, is it in context? So Ezekiel 18.20, whoever has it. I have it. Hold on. It is, actually. No, I know, I know it is. Sorry, I just remembered where I got the verse. Yep, that's correct. Ezekiel? It should be. Okay. Yeah. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteousness, their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. Deuteronomy 24:16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. I wanted to include these couple of verses, and this is this is a little bit off the beaten path of um, the passage. But I don't think this gets hit, hit on very much at all. Jesus makes it very clear here that you are not responsible for what your parents have done. I know that I know that may sound weird, but I've come across so many people that feel entrapped by the sin of their parents, predisposed to the same sins, perhaps even guilty for some of what they have done. As Ezekiel says, the righteous man is going to be rewarded according to his sin, the wicked to his. And so with that, you don't have to feel that you can go no further than your parents, spiritually, physically, in any different realm. You are not only going to hit the same things that your parents have. If they've struggled in one area, it doesn't mean that it's generational and that you have to struggle in the same area. You don't have to be stuck in that bondage. And I know a lot of us have, um, how to put it tactfully, there have been things that we have really suffered with in some ways with our parents and with our parents' sin. Um, I, I think that goes for everyone in this room in different ways. There are, there are multitudes of different ways that our parents have gone wrong. And that's okay. That's, that's on them. That's their own spiritual journey, but you are not bound to that. And Jesus makes that very clear. They believed that the sin of the parents would perhaps cause infirmity in this person. And Jesus says that that's not true. And the Old Testament confirms that. That was just a traditional teaching. I think that seeps into our minds here today as well. Why did, why did he suffer then, according to the passage? What, what was the reasoning Jesus gave? And how, what? You, you could just read the verses. I know he answers it. But how would you put it in your own words? Literally so God could be seen healing Okay. How would you compare it to the reasons that Job suffered? Interesting, by the way, Job's friends immediately attributed it to sin in his life, just like they did here, too. Hmm. Yeah. Also, it's in the Bible that we're reading out of today. So, like, literally, I mean, when he says the works of God might be displayed in him, like, hmm. we're literally studying the works of God being displayed in him, just like Job. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I was hearing. 
I think that's the whole point of Job, in all honesty, like, is for us to read and study. Job never got an answer. This guy at least did. <laughs> you know, he, he literally said, so that God may be glorified around you, basically. Whereas Job basically kind of got a little reprimand and had to pray for his friends after the whole incident. You know, he never got an explanation as to why. A lot of suffering, though, is not due to sin, though originally suffering is from sin. That's not what I mean. Suffering can be used as an avenue for which God to be glorified, plain and simple. It doesn't necessarily have to do with being punished. Um, I, I think one of the best examples I've seen in real life of this is the absolutely amazing spirit and testimony in Jody Erickson Tata. She, I don't, not that I know of, obviously, I don't know her life, but she didn't deserve anything of this, you know, like terrible injury that she had. And if you don't uh, know Jody Erickson Tata, look her up and you, there, there are some people who really are great theologians are some people that you just know beam with a relationship with God and she's one of those people that just moves you because she is clearly so close with God and her injuries and her wheelchair boundness have not inhibited her but rather launched her spiritual journey and this is going to do the same God being glorified through this person verses 6 and 7 this is very interesting the actual healing in this passage is almost like a low point it's just kind of Passing side note, by the way, he got healed. The rest of it's the big big boy stuff happening in the, in the rest of the passage. Verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Salam, Salam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back to him. Gotta love some of the early church fathers. They, you know, they read everything into everything. Um, Genesis 2-7 is where they connected this passage that man was created from dust and so Jesus was creating new eyesight by doing it. I don't have any reason why he chose to spit on the ground and do it. <laughs> Maybe it was just because that was the nearest thing. I really don't know. Because he can't. That literally might yeah. be the reason. Some, but I don't know. So I thought you might find that interesting. Man was created, you know, the whole creation story, but that he was creating eyesight. That was some of their thoughts in the early church. But... Um, Again, pretty straightforward. It, it literally is not complex. That's one of the beautiful things about this passage. He's going to just answer here in a few minutes, like, how'd you get healed? Because he spit on the ground and put dirt on my eyes. <laughs> and it, it, it really, the simplicity, simplicity of it adds to the condemnation of the Pharisees. That's the, if you want to build something deep and complex out of this, the fact that it's so simple and yet so damning to the Pharisees, that's the deep part about this. Uh, verses 8 through 16. I, that was the power. This is the perplexity that they were found in after that. Verses 8 through 16. His neighbors who, uh, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claims that he was. Others said, No, he looks like him. But, for, but he himself instead I am, insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They asked, he replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. The Pharisees investigate the healing. Um, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind, 
Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was the Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So notice this. We're, he's, sat in, he's sitting and begging. People are like, this isn't him. It's like, he's like, I'm literally him. And then he says, how'd this happen? man called Jesus, anointed my eyes with clay, told me to go to the pool, wash. And then they said to him, where is he? And then Jesus said, I, they, he said, I don't know. And Jesus has now slipped away mysteriously throughout this whole thing. They brought him to the Pharisees. They didn't know what to do with him. And they said, so what happened? And he said it again. <laughs> this is going to be a theme throughout the whole thing. He's just going to keep saying, I don't know. I don't know. And he's actually going to accuse him later. This is one of the funniest points of the passage. They're going to keep asking him this question. He's like, I don't know. Do you want to become his disciples too? And it's like, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I love the sarcasm of this guy. He is hilarious. <laughs> but all the, all the parallels are there in Jesus' teaching. They just come at different angles for different people in different situations. This guy is going to respond when asked who, who Jesus is. He starts out saying that he's a prophet. Sound familiar? Woman at the well, Nicodemus. These are all like, oh, they're people from God. Then Jesus will reapproach later and take it one step further and be like, no, no, we're, we're not just a prophet. I'm not just a person sent from God. I'm, I'm literally the son of God. I'm literally the Messiah. And for those of them that have eyes to see, they believe. That's sort of the trend that we're seeing here throughout. I, I split this up into different sections just so that I can make a little comment between them. Um, but look at what unbelief does to these folks. Uh, verse 17 through 24, and then uh, we'll go from there. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees we do not know nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. <laughs> he will speak for himself. <laughs> um, parentheses, his parents said these things this, because they feared the Jews. This is very important. Okay. Uh, what, what verse are you on? 22. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind and now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? That's good. That's good. So, <laughs> so funny. <laughs> so, this is very interesting. It's not that his parents didn't know, by the way. Catch what they said in the passage. They said it because they feared the Jews, because anyone who, yada, yada. And what that means is excommunication from the synagogue was coming for them. If, if they 
you know, we got too close to Jesus. And so that's what this man's going to get by the end of this thing. He's going to get excommunicated from the synagogue, which is a huge deal. I mean, that's like being kicked out of your religion. It's not like you can just go down to the next synagogue like we can here in America. Uh, yeah. Also says here in my Bible, you can't do business. Okay, it I did not know. It takes that. away your well-being. Yeah, it's it's a big deal. It's it's literally their entire like life, and so again, it's interesting. He they, so they they throw it back on the kid. They like I, I don't want to deal with this, and you find that he just says um, they say give God the glory. Um, we know that this man is a sinner. That is a reference, um, in my opinion, or at least there's a good cross-reference for those of you who are interested, to Joshua 7, 19. Um, this is where, um, I believe, Achan had stolen. And one of the things that gives glory to God is confession of sin. That's what's taught in Joshua there. And so that's kind of where that idea stems from, is that before Achan would be punished, they want him to confess his sin. They already knew it, but they want to give glory to God by him confessing his sin publicly. So anyways, so the whole thing, I don't know, I was literally blind and now I see. And that has such interest. It's so beautiful. It's almost poetic. Like, I was blind and now I see. And, um, but, the, but the cool thing about it is, like, 100% literal. Like, we can spiritualize that, but, like, he literally was like, I don't know. I know I was blind. I know I see. Okay? Like, chill. <laughs> um, verse, I, let's go ahead and read from uh, 26 down through verse 30. Whoever has it. 25. But go ahead. Trey had stopped at 27. Should I just start from there? Uh, sure, that's fine. <laughs> then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. So, he's starting to get a little... He's not. He's not a theologian, but he's like... It's literally incredible that you don't know where he's come from. He literally opened my eyes. Like, what, what don't you get here? And that's kind of his accusation towards them is, you know, he, he, you know they, he accuses them, do you want to be his disciples? They revile, like, yeah, you're sure, whatever, you're his disciple, but we're Moses' disciples. We know revelation came to Moses, but we don't know about this guy. By the way, they couldn't even come to say the name Jesus, but um, they just said this guy, basically. And he just, he shoots back like, how do you not know? It's right there. He's literally doing miracles. He's clearly from God. And that's, that's, the, that's the deliberation they had back in verse 16. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was already internal disagreement about that topic within them. Nicodemus, what did he say? We know that you're from God because no one can do signs like this. So that thought was already there in, in the culture's mind. He was just saying it. He was just being like, stop being hypocrites. You, you know that if he's from God, that's, that's why he can do these signs. Um, whoever has 31 through 34. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opens the eyes of the one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were, com you were completely born in sins, and you were teaching us, and they cast him out. What do you think of the dialogue represented by each party in this passage? 
Like, what are your general thoughts on it? I have a couple more specific questions, but just general thoughts on the dialogue represented by each. Yeah. I'd say, for one, this guy kind of does make good arguments. And he, the Pharisees say, say, hey, you want to lecture us? Hey, who asked you? You did. Yeah. <laughs> Other thoughts. What what attitudes do you see in the Pharisees? Attitudes you see in this man, etc. Um, he's getting constantly more and more frustrated because he's like, I'm literally telling you the exact truth that yeah. happened, and you aren't believing me. And I think the Pharisees were just hoping against all hope for something that would um, further their case against Christ. So they're like, if this man could, you know, say that he did some like witchcraft to make his eyes open, then we can be like burning her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like the Pharisees are immediately trained to character defamation. Yeah. yeah. You know, like there's no like, explain this again. So he rubbed mud in your eyes, and there's no trying to understand. Right. It's an immediate like, exactly. no, he's a sinner, or he's like. Satan or something, you know, they're just, there's just no exception to the rule that Jesus is a sinner. This person, even if he did make you see, it's not of God, you know, immediate assumptions. Yeah, Pharisees already had, like, their, they knew exactly what they were going to end with in this, and, like, the, uh, the Pharisees knew what they were going to end up, how it was going to end up happening. You know what I mean? They wanted their, they like knew any the time the, that they wanted. Yeah. Anytime the blind man came back with whatever he said, they were just like, just shut up, you're stupid. Like, and then asked him again. And mm-hmm. in the end, they were just like, literally, you're teaching us? Are you kidding me? You're born in sin. Stop. You're stupid. Throw it. Throw you out. And then, you know, that's how it ended. So, like, they already had the end in mind. They knew exactly how it was going to end, but they were just, at least in my opinion. I'm going to bounce off that. I'm not trying to ignore you guys. Then why do we, as the theologians of today, turn around and belittle people who make a claim that we initially disagree with? Are we not just seeking confirmation of what we believe most often? Don't we roll up to most situations with what we're already trying to prove in our head? Like... I was talking about this with Nathan. I think you guys are fantastic at seeking with an open mind and honestly seeking truth. You guys are some of the best at it. I, I really believe that. But it's still, why, why is that such a tendency? Why do we roll up with such a like hard nose? It's not about seeking the truth. It's about finding a way to prove that it's right, even if it's against all of the evidence. Why is that? Yeah. So when somebody comes like you're wrong, it's kind of like a pride thing. Mm-hmm. So that makes it harder to. It doesn't feel like they're attacking your belief. It feels like they're attacking you. So that's why you have to shift things around and be like, all right, you have to detach somewhat when you're in the argument where you want to actually learn stuff. Yeah. And sometimes it's difficult. Like just literally the other day, literally Sunday, Andrew and I went out to lunch and a gentleman pulled us aside. I'm trying. Not to judge his appearance, but he had face tattoos, pants sagging down, and stuff like that. He looked like that. And he addressed that while talking to us. 
but it's very difficult to understand him just because he's slurred his speech and stuff like that. But he was arguing, bringing up topics like um, reincarnation and stuff like that that I immediately disagreed with from the beginning. And it was really hard just to even listen to him because everything he said was illogical and gibberish. Yeah. And I did my best just to be patient, and Andrew did too. <laughs> You better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> we were quiet most of the time. There was a reason for that. <laughs> may, I, may I say with this, though, there is, there's nothing wrong with taking a firm stance for truth and rejecting heresy. That's not wrong. That's something Jesus did literally all the time. However, with that, we have to be willing to be open-minded enough to be corrected by somebody who shouldn't know more than us. Like, they may not be as trained, they may not be as smart, they may not be whatever in your area thing, but yet still, you can learn something from them. And that's what's incredible about Paul in Romans 1, when he's introdu uh, writing his introduction to the Romans, he's like just wanting to be with them so he can be encouraged and learn alongside them. It's a very interesting thing to look at Paul's mindset in the people he was writing to. Of all people, Paul has all of the revelation. He's converted these people. He's trained them in the faith, yet he wants to go and learn and fellowship and be encouraged by them, which is very interesting. Being able to be taught and encouraged and challenged and built up and exhorted by people beneath us in whatever area, and I use beneath with air quotes for a reason, that's a skill that we should develop, to have the humility to accept that. Thanks. <laughs> um, I think it's also, like, it's just, in our culture especially, we are so, like, prepared to defend our stance on whatever it is because a lot of times if you don't, there's an expectation that you're just going to get walked on. You know, whether it's your political views, whether it's, I mean, just you know, your stance on, on like, we even experienced some of this, like, in our class over the summer, like, you know, debates over homosexuality, and it's like, if you don't take a strong stance, people just, like, walk all over you. And so we're very, like, trained, almost, and prepared to, like, know what you believe, know why you believe it, and not that that's wrong, I'm not saying that, but sometimes we take it to the extreme of not being willing to listen to someone because we're so focused on having to be right and get our point across that a lot of times you miss out on opportunities to actually minister to that person because a lot of times if they're trying to debate with you about something or you know like if they're if they're lost I mean they're not grounded in truth and you know like that guy he may not really know what he's talking about and he's confused and he needs someone to tell him the truth but if you're not willing to stop and actually listen to where they're at, getting your point across however you see fit is not actually going to help that person at all. And so it's, I think it's important to not become ignorant about, about that. And that's what happened with the Pharisees. Like they were so just set in that and so ignorant that they could not like conceptualize what this guy was saying. And he was like, listen. <laughs> I literally could not see, and now I can see. Why can't you understand that? And it was because they just would not allow themselves to listen to that. So I think it's it's important to know what you believe and know why you believe it, but be able to listen at the same time. Otherwise, you're just like a Pharisee in that way. 
Um, kind of similar to what Joanna and Kieran said, um, a lot of the reasons that I tend to be so close-minded when it comes to like religion is because I base my whole life off of that. Like, like that's literally my rock, and now you want me to move it? Like, no way. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm not advocating that we're easily persuaded. I'm not advocating that we have you know just wishy-washiness. I think there's too much of that as it is. But what I am advocating, I'm. You, you guys know that I try to prepare to give you an answer for just about everything when throwing some random thing out of a passage. That's why I, that's why I go as deep as I do and make it as monotonous as I do sometimes is <laughs> because I want you guys to look at that and be like, that, now that you say that, that does look like a contradiction. Why, why is that there? I want you guys to be able to have an answer. But more than that, I want your, all of us to be like ruled by truth, not by tradition and pride, really, as you pointed out. Spiritual sight requires that one realize that he has sin. This is the first test of the faith that we're going to come across in 1 John. Now, you may not believe me, but a lot of the things that Jesus is teaching is just laid out more succinctly in 1 John. So when we come to 1 John here soon, it's going to be like, we've literally talked about this for like the past like eight weeks, Sam. And I'm going to be like, I know, look, it's back in a different book in question form, in like a verse, which is really cool to see it boiled down like that. But Jesus is accusing them of the same thing here. Um, in John and 1 John, there's consistent imagery of God as light, Jesus as light. In him is no darkness found at all. 1 John 1.5. 1 John 1.5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. The issue is not if God is light, but if we are able to come to the light. Jesus described how men are blinded because they love the dark, their deeds are dark, and so they won't come to the light. Um, we also talked about how Satan blinds people's eyes um, so that they can't come to the truth. Um, but I wanted to share just a bit more on this idea of spiritual blindness and eyes being blinded. I know we've hinted at that in passing, but it's such a foundational concept um, to all things um, uh, salvation, really, that spiritual blindness, both Old Testament and New Testament, are talked about the analogies of light, darkness. It's all throughout. It's replete. It's full in Scripture. Um, and so I'm going to list off a bunch of, bunch of verses um, that says that Scripture consistently teaches that we need to have eyes to see spiritual truth. Um, and so have your verse ready. I'm going to list them off, and then we're going to come back through. I, I just wanted to prove that I'm not making this up. It's everywhere. Isaiah 43, 8, Jeremiah 5, 21, Isaiah 56, 10, Acts 26, 18, Isaiah 29, 9 through 14, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10, Isaiah 44, 18, Matthew 13, 10 through 17, John uh, 12, 37 through 43, Jeremiah, uh, sorry, Isaiah 43, 8. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes. Who are deaf yet have ears. Jeremiah 5.21 Hear this foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, who have ears but hear not. Isaiah 56.10 Since <coughs> watchmen are blind, 
They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreamy, lying down, loving to sleep. <coughs> Acts twenty six eighteen. To open their eyes so that they may see, may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Isaiah 29, 9-14. Say yourselves in wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you a spirit of deep, deep sleep. Have closed your eyes. The prophets in your work and your rulers, the seers have covered. And the vision is all become unto you as the words of the book received, which men deliver unto one that is learned, and say, Read this, I pray ye. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, and said, Read this, I pray thee, and he said, I am not learned. Therefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouths and with their lips, and do honor me, but have removed their hearts far from me, their fear towards me is taught by the precept, precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do marvelous works among this people, and even marvelous work and wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. He said, you, you literally are going to read that and not understand. I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to hide you. I'm going to make you so blind you don't even have wisdom towards passage anymore. It's a nice miracle. Um, Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah 44, 18. They have not known or understood, for he has shut their eyes, and they cannot see, and their hearts they cannot understand. Matthew thirteen ten through 17 Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this person's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they could see, their, see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart. In turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. John 12. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, so they can neither see with their eyes, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Yet, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. 
God clearly states that he gives and does not give vision. He said, you know, they have eyes, but cover their eyes so they don't see. And then it says in that passage, he hardens their heart. So you have to have spiritual <coughs> eyes in order to see. Um, we There's plenty more on this. Romans 1 is probably the best, like, section of scripture dedicated to it. Second Corinthians 4 also is also dedicated to it. Sinners are confined to walk in darkness, Proverbs 2.12, and they switch evil and good, Isaiah 5.20. To deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave paths of uprightness, to walk in the ways of darkness. Isaiah 5.20, switching evil and good. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Spiritually blind people grope around the darkness because they don't know where they're going. It's not that it's hard to find God. He's all around us. But people refuse to repent and believe. Acts 17, 27-31, uh, 1 John 2:11. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. He has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. First John two eleven. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Sinful men belong to the domain of darkness and don't have fellowship with God who is a light. For the sinful men who uh, belong in the domain of darkness, see Ephesians 5, 7 through 11, Colossians 1, 13, uh, don't have fellowship with God who is the light, 1 John 1, 6. But Ephesians 5, 7 through 11, and Colossians 1, 13 first. Colossians 1, 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 5, 7 through 11. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world, or light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It's interesting, I suppose. First mm -hmm. John one six. I have John one six. <laughs> it is a first John one six. Wait, it isn't. It shouldn't be. Did you save me on that? I bet you no you didn't. No, that's somewhere else. Try first John one six, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Something good might happen. <laughs> you might be right, though. You might have accidentally given out the right thing. If we say, look at me. Oh, no, this is right. This is right. 
If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Those who walk in darkness don't have fellowship with God. The cure for spiritual blindness. Let's finish this out. Um, I want to... Um, it's a very simple answer, but it goes. It's gonna. Fit, it's gonna fit so well with what we see Jesus teaching in um, John chapter nine. Um, it, it simply is found in the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is always initiated by God, not us. Isaiah forty two six, Luke four sixteen through twenty one, Isaiah twenty nine eighteen, Isaiah nine two. The light described in these verses, by the way, is none other than Jesus Himself. Uh, Luke, I'm sorry, Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Luke 4, 16 through 21. <clears throat> and he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And, he was, and, it, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. <coughs> he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, Isaiah twenty nine eighteen. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep deep darkness the light will shine. Um, John 1, uh, sorry, John 1, 4-5 and 9, John 8, 22, John 12, 46. We're going to skip over those. Those are verses um, showing that Jesus is described as the light. Um, so if, you're, if you want more on that, we can talk about that later. Um, once we are saved, we're transferred to the kingdom of light. That is what is taught um, throughout scripture. We were enslaved in the kingdom of darkness, in slavery to Satan, blinded by his eyes. God initiates salvation. We are transferred to the kingdom of light. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 5, 1 Peter 2, 19. I'm sorry, 2, 9, excuse me. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5. 4 through 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for the day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. 1 Peter 2.9. Ooh, yeah, good. it is. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you would show forth the praises of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. 
And this is exactly what happened with this man. Let's go back to John chapter 9 and finish this um, chapter out. So we see um, in verses um, 35 and onward, Jesus has refound him. And he says to him, do you believe in the Son of God? Divine initiative in action here, quite literally, in the person of Jesus. Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. Now, what's incredible about this is that there's divine initiative and there is the sovereignty of God in drawing him. And this is what's incredible. is Jesus provides an answer for how this man can believe in a different passage. Matthew 16, 15 through 17, and 1 John 5, 13. This is so beautiful because this man could not have come to the conclusion that Jesus is a son of God on his own. He had to have been revealed it by the Father. Matthew 16, 15 through 17. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I didn't include the verses. Other verses would support from Jesus' teaching. The Father sovereignly draws those to belief in the Son of God. 1 John 5, 13. These... These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. When we believe that he is the Son of God genuinely, we have eternal life. And here's what's cool about this, is this belief for this blind man immediately turns into good works. That's been the whole theme of the series. Faith resulting in works. What's it say after he's, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. That immediately, no one had to teach him. Ah, worship. Okay, cool. You like, you're supposed to like, do the things and like have good works. And no, he just like, okay, you're him. Boom, good works. Like immediately, the spirit inside him just gushed out, good works, genuine worship, immediately. Um, let's have somebody read from uh, 39 onward. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see me may see, and that those who see me may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Jesus was clearly teaching here that if you are unwilling to recognize your sin, you're not in a place to receive forgiveness. He said, if you were blind, you would be fine. But because you're not blind, air quotes, that's your problem. This man, he was blind spiritually, physically, and he knew it, came to the place where he recognized his sin. It's like the publican, beat his chest because he knew he was a sinner. But the Pharisees weren't ready. So that is, too, a portion of genuine faith. And as we'll see, the first test of the faith in 1 John is those who believe that they have no sin, they're a liar, and the truth does not reside in them. You have to understand as a prerequisite for salvation that you are a sinner and in desperate need for what Jesus has to offer. 
Matthew 9, 10 through 13. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he had heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of, need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Truth number one, the attitude you come to the table with determines the taste of the food. Truth number two, unbelief produces blindness even when there is evidence for it. Truth number three, you don't need a theological background to worship God. The Spirit opens one's eyes to produce worship naturally. And with that, I say, so what? Who cares? So what? What does that mean? What does that do for us at all? What does that mean to us? Yeah. I think I far too often um, suppress what I know is a good work to do. And only think about it. It's all just in my head thinking about it. Okay. And whenever the situation actually arises to put what I think about in practice, to practice, you know, to put into practice what we learn through scripture, what I learn through scripture, I, I make up an excuse as to why I can't do it. That's okay. why it's inconvenient. But it's almost like I see it and then I'm quickly like, oh, try to forget it. Because, you know, if you, if you keep dwelling on it, then you'll be convicted about it. So just get it out of your head, like, you know, and just keep doing what you were doing. And so I think that, um, I think a lot of times the Spirit does lead me to do good works, you know, as the Spirit does do. But I think sometimes I don't. I think I reject that. Many times um, we, I say we collectively, I would say me, but uh, we focus on, we focus on more on being right rather than doing right. So what? How does this passage impact us personally? Something that keeps coming in my mind is the parents, actually. Um, I don't know, I just find it interesting and like I understand why they did what they did. It makes sense. Um, but it's kind of scary because I think especially like, you know, as as times get harder, um, and as it gets harder to actually live out the life of a Christian, I think a lot of us are going to look more and more like the parents, and um, and you know just being like I'm scared of what they might do to me. I'm scared of rejection. I'm scared of being cast out, and so you leave the witnessing or the um, you know whatever it is to the next guy. Um, and I think that that's 
it's very easy to do already, but I don't think it, like, it's not going to get any easier. It's only going to get harder. But I don't know, like, when I thought about that, I was like, it's kind of scary because I yeah. think, I think we do that a lot already. Like, I do that a lot already. Yeah. And you know, come up with some kind of excuse as to why I shouldn't be the one to talk to that person or it's like what Josh said, like shoving it out of your mind yeah. as quickly as possible because you're like, ah, it's, it's not me. Um, Same one thing we could take away from this is, again, a blind man, ironic, <laughs> ironically, in his case, and, and though it's burnt, visibly ironic, saw better, <laughs> saw better than everyone else. Yeah. This answer is not complicated. This is actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible. So, this is not complicated, guys. I've literally said it over and over again. How are you not getting this? He healed me. He is of God. Again, there. Again, there. Again, there. We're kind of throwing him to the wolves. Okay, well, that's your, that's your opinion. I hope you don't like make the synagogue too much. Yeah. And he's just going. And he's pretty much saying, I think he's going to say, it's okay. who cares? Who cares? You got it. I'm I'm telling you guys the truth. You're just not listening. Mm -hmm. yeah. Colin, um, you know I was saying, like, falls down to a matter of value. So Jesus makes it clear that these these people are not believing because they weren't following God. Like, and so their value is like way askew. And so they're just they don't really care about the truth. They're just trying to prove that. Okay, so like witchcraft, is this guy in sin? Um, even though, ironically, the demons themselves were jumping out of people and screaming, this is the son of God. <laughs> <laughs> this guy from Satan? Or the demons? No, he's not. <laughs> <laughs> I promise, I he is not. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to find some different demons. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably what they would say. Yeah, these demons are nuts. <laughs> <laughs> demons. May I? May I? May I jump off that? Just real quick? I'll finish real quick. Okay. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, basically, it's like, and what Josh was saying, like, we drown in things and thought, like, well, I could help that person, but you know, I might not be on time for this, and then whatever you, you know, just pour some thought on there, and it, it's so easy, but if our value is like, so what if I go to that person on the plane and just preach the gospel? Yeah. I'm not going to see them ever again. And even if I did, so what? If I leave this world with a reputation, that guy just went up and shared Christ with me. Awesome. <laughs> it's just like I, I'm really thinking over this like radical sense of our value. Like if we leave the world just kind of destitute of possessions because we just for God, or if we leave with the reputation from others of, that was a little strange, you just shared Christ with me. Great! Like, it's a different mindset because it's so easy to drown things in thought. And it's like, where is our value? And it's obvious to see what the Pharisees value was put. I'm not, I'm not to that point personally. I, I agree with it intellectually. I am nowhere close personally yet. 
think he explained that better than I did. <laughs> it's, it's also incredible for those of us who are prone to the theology side. I think we're very, very quick to just be like, aha, I found a minute flaw. And then like, I, I read a quote, like, if you locked all the Christians in the world in a room, that's how you do your best wiping them out. It'd be over in a week. You know, because we'd, we'd all finish each other off because we couldn't stand each other. And it's not, but again, it's not that truth is harmful. I, I love disagreement. I love proper arguments. But if we, if we are just purposely being nitpicky, that's an entirely different thing. Being nitpicky for the sake of nitpickiness is not a healthy thing. You both had your hand up, yeah. I get, I get wrapped up in the debate. I'm like, um, and I can sink my teeth in, which isn't the best thing because if I'm arguing with something on the basis of truth, I should be a lot kinder because according to this, they're like a blind person. I'm trying to explain color to them and then I'm getting mad at them when they don't understand what color is. And it's... <laughs> you can't... You can't get mad at them for not understanding something that they cannot convincingly understand. God's job to open their eyes, you just need to relate it. So I need to focus on that more rather yeah. than the... Ah. Yeah. I like the sound effects. <laughs> Sounded very much like Kanye. <laughs> um, mine was kind of to add to your point. I, this passage makes me think of a coworker. Um, uh, a little over a year ago, I had this coworker, and he was um, not a Christian, but he had an uncle who was like, a very radical Christian, and I, I've never met the uncle, obviously, but um, what he said is like, it's crazy, he like changed his whole life around, but now he like won't stop talking about God, and I'm like, okay, but um, I was always really careful around him, because I knew that he was just looking for one thing, and it's like, you're not, you're, you're hypocritical, yeah. um, you're a hypocrite, and um, one night, he liked asking me questions, which is funny because a year a year ago I didn't know anything. <laughs> so I'm literally just going off of like a premature baby knowledge. Um, and he asked me one night what I thought what I would do if a homosexual came into my church. Like, how should the church respond? So, and I respond um, with kind of like, we should show them love, um, and. And, I mean, they're still a person, and he's like, well, do you think they could become a Christian? And I'm like, if they did become a Christian, they wouldn't be homosexuals anymore. That's, that's basically what my answer was. Um, and so he's like, that's not the answer I expected. <laughs> so it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, people can be very close-minded, but if you answer it, I don't know, I, I just thought it was applicable. I don't yeah. really know why it's applicable, but... <laughs> if you answer tactfully, it might get further. Yeah. So, you know, just talking about what we took away, I feel like, because it doesn't really blend well with what's already been said, so I don't feel like it's like an addition, but I do it, like, with what we were saying. What's your name, by the way? Matthias. Matthias. Matthias, what you were saying about the overcomplication of the gospel. I really agree with that, and I think that's a big thing. I think we naturally, maybe as, you know, baby theologians or as, you know, people who do aspire to seek truth, we, in, we add more variables to the pie than is necessary, and we try and make things more complex than they need to be in order to flex our intellectual muscles or whatever. 
and we never arrive at any consensus and then we're just off over here like doing math on a board and Jesus is over here like you know like come back man it's, it's a pretty simple idea here that we're discussing and uh, I really like that and I think as well it, it bleeds into your life too you know just keeping your your life simple you know it's just a very simple thing follow God listen to the teachings of the Bible apply them practically and watch the results unfold it's really that simple you know, and, and I think we always overcomplicate it. And the other thing is the attitude thing. I, I loved that, and I think the reverse end of the negative attitude that the Pharisees had towards the guy, the preconceived notions that they had. I mean, imagine if we came in with positive preconceived notions about the things that we're studying and learning and what effect that would have on our lives. So, um, I don't know, I think it's just a, it's a neat thing because I can, I can look at my life and see the times where I've had very clearly a negative preconceived notion about something mm -hmm. that was looking back hindsight's always twenty twenty. I was completely wrong and if I'd only known my life would be completely different today you know and so you know just really good stuff those are the two ways that I feel it applies to me personally we've presented a lot of different angles of the gospel and a lot of different sides of it and really just kind of just shot at it from different perspectives but the acronym of KISS really does you know, hold true every time. Keep it simple, stupid. Um, I mean, Jesus died for us and all the things that we, all the facts that we already know, but it really is even simple beyond that. I've just taken a lot of time to try to show it. He literally demands our life and our service and our all, and in, in exchange we get his righteousness. That's, I mean, that's the entire thing of the series. Hit from a bazillion different angles, and First John's going to test that and provide a bunch of different ways to see if we know that. But at the, at the end of the day, that's just what we're trying to figure out. Yes, Ola? <laughs> um, going off of kind of what... Uh, Trey. Trey. That's all right. <laughs> what Trey was saying. Um, like... And what we were talking about earlier of how he was repeating and repeating and repeating what he was saying and they were looking down on him because he was a beggar and he was blind and all these different factors of he's below me he doesn't know as much as me i think that sometimes god can provide some something or someone that's right in front of your face it could be the eight-year-old that you're teaching something to at yes. you know on sunday and they're bringing a whole new perspective that you never even thought of before but you're like oh you're eight years old you don't know anything and I think it's just allowing yourself to, like, if you're praying for God to answer a question, you need to be open to any answer he gives you because ultimately his answer is right, no matter where it comes from. Out of the mouth of babes, as the scripture says. <laughs> and you had your hand. I was just going to simply add on to sort of what Josh has been saying, which is um, you need to stop looking at it from more of a change my mind perspective to more of a, okay, why do you think that? And kind of hearing their thing and maybe, if they're right, tweaking your philosophy. Whereas, we, t we try to know, I'm right, and here's why I'm right. You're wrong, now go away. Yeah. Assume the best, not the worst. Don't debate a fool according to his folly. Wait for God to open his eyes. And blindness can look, cut your nose off in spite of your face.
Um, there's a saying that goes, if you start debating a fool, he will be deb debating one in five minutes. And that's very true. Okay. That's it.